0: Welcome to What Happens Next, my name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, history, politics, and current events. Today's session will be on Operation Warp Speed. Our speaker will be Paul Mango, who helped manage Operation Warp Speed as the former Deputy Chief of the U.S. Health and Human Services for the federal government. He has just written a new book entitled Warp Speed, Inside the Operation that Beat COVID, The Critics, and the Odds. What Happens Next uses a team of interns, and I have some job openings. Interns improve the podcast by selecting topics of discussion, editing, marketing, and production. If you're interested, please email me at bernstein one at gmail.com. Also, please subscribe to our weekly email list that is available on our website, what happens Next in 6 minutescom to hear about our upcoming podcasts. All right, let's begin with Paul Mango and his six-minute presentation.
1: I wrote Warp Speed for two reasons, actually. One is the whole effort occurred during a presidential election year, and I think the success of Operation Warp Speed got buried because the media was intently focused on the campaign, and of course anything that was going well maybe wasn't going to be talked about in the media, particularly if it was the incumbent president. The second reason was because there's a lot of lessons to be learned from what we did well and what we would do differently. It's important for government policymakers, for the American people, for private industry to understand how this happened. The previous best time for bringing a vaccine to market was four and a half years. And the Operation Warp Speed effort did it in 10 months. Why was it successful? Five reasons I talk about in the book. I'll go over them very, very quickly. One is private industry had invested in technology called messenger RNA. It was a technology platform that had never been used to develop vaccines, but it was available to us, and we took a shot at it. We invested a couple billion dollars in it, and it worked, which was very important. The second reason was that we had a principle that basically said, do not permit the federal government to do anything that the private sector can do better. That was a guiding principle for us. The third reason was we had Secretary Alex Azar, who was 10 years in the pharmaceutical industry before he was secretary. And he understood the risk thresholds and what the pharmaceutical industry would do and would not do. And he understood that they wouldn't start manufacturing vaccines in a normal course of action if they didn't get FDA approval. So we did in parallel things that were typically done in series and we started manufacturing vaccines long before the FDA approved anything. The fourth reason was Monsef Slaoui, who was our chief scientific advisor, at a venture capital mindset. He said, we're going to invest in six different vaccines across three different technology platforms. We only need one to win. The very last reason was just a management philosophy that permitted experts rather than people with lofty titles to do what was necessary to get the job done. What would we have done differently if we could do it over again? I think we failed pretty miserably at communicating with the American people about how safe and effective these vaccines were. And we were in a very difficult situation because if we started talking about safe and effective vaccines before the FDA adjudicated it, we would have been accused of trying to unduly influence the regulators. So we didn't talk much about it. But what we could have talked about was the standards we raised for these clinical trials 50% more participants in these trials than in a typical vaccine clinical trial, and a longer interval between the time people got their injections and the time we evaluated them for any type of adverse reaction. So these were actually higher standards than was ever used before. So those were things we would do differently, lessons for why we were successful and why I wrote the book
0: in the first place. Let's go over the venture capital mindset. It's very rare that government officials think like venture capitalists or apply portfolio diversification to solve public health problems. Tell us more about that venture capital mindset.
1: Steve Mnuchin, who was the Secretary of the Treasury at the time, came over and spoke to Secretary Azar and me and a number of individuals in HHS, and he said, every day the economy is running at half speed, I lose $7 billion of tax revenue. Whatever it takes to get these vaccines out as quickly as possible, My guess is it'll be worth it. (laughs) We're also saving lives. We brought in private sector leaders to become part of Operation Warp Speed. And Monsef Slaoui was the most successful vaccine developer of our generation. People never had heard of him, but he had put 14 successful vaccines into the market. And he understood our mission, which was to have at least one safe and effective vaccine manufactured at scale before the end of 2020. He's the one who thought through the need to really diversify our risks. There were some folks who wanted to stick with the tried and true technologies that we had used to develop vaccines in the past. But Monsef had come from Moderna and he knew that they had mRNA technology that could be successful. So he set it up in a way where we had three different technology platforms with two vaccine candidates in each one. He had a fight uh, against the traditionalists. It worked. We had three successful vaccines across two platforms. We took a little bit of a trust-but-verify approach to MONSEF. After he chose the six vaccines, we went out and spoke to a number of experts, both on the Operation Warp Speed team and beyond, and asked them independently what they thought the probabilities were. And we conducted this pretty complicated cumulative probability analysis. And when it came back, the numbers were that we had a 75% chance of having at least one of those six. safe and effective, manufactured at scale, and a 32% chance of having two or more and less than 10% chance of having three or more. So that gave the team a tremendous amount of confidence that the venture capital mindset was the right one to take.
0: Why limit yourself at just six vaccine choices? Why limit yourself to just three platforms? Why not do like 20 different strategies and get the likelihood of success up to 90%?
1: A lot of external experts asked us the same question, but the answer is very simple and very compelling. This really wasn't about the science as much as it was about the logistics. The logistics of manufacturing, the logistics of getting a minimum of 30,000 persons through each clinical trial, the logistics of acquiring syringes and needles to administer the vaccines. And the complexity of the logistics goes up exponentially with every additional candidate. So I'll give you an example. Even among the six that we had, think about this logistically, they had different intervals between shot one and shot two. They took different size syringes. And remember, we were in the midst of a global pandemic where everyone else in the world was looking for raw materials, was looking for syringes, was looking for needles. And by the way, every clinical trial site could only handle one vaccine type and we made that decision because again the complexity at the local level of trying to administer in a clinical trial multiple vaccine types we thought was going to compromise the data so that's the reason we stuck with six we contemplated a seventh and when we ran through the numbers the probability we'd have at least one good vaccine before year-end was 75 percent Adding a seventh one took it up only to about 77.5%. Each additional vaccine candidate, if it only adds a couple hundred basis points, but it adds tremendous complexity, we thought that was not a good trade-off. The money wasn't the rate limiting factor at all. It was the logistical complexity. CBS hired 25,000 vaccinators in late 2020 and had to train them all, and they had to train them all in the different types of vaccine candidates that we had, because we didn't know which one was going to be a winner. FedEx took every one of its ground drivers and retrained them on how to handle minus 80 degrees Celsius and those types of things. It was a keen sense of how this would have to play out across tens of thousands of workers and eventually millions of Americans.
0: The first vaccine dose as a world of good in terms of reducing risk of hospitalization. And the second dose does some incremental benefit. At the outset, when there was such a limited supply of vaccine, why not try to get as much single dose out to the public as possible and do the second dose when it was more widely available?
1: You're exactly right, but we didn't know what you just described when we were going through the clinical trials. The 95% effectiveness that came out of the phase three clinical trials were all based on two doses. I think where there could have been room for criticism, people have proven that three weeks was not long enough interval for the second dose to have as much impact as it should have. So in other words, maybe optimally, you give the first dose and then three months later you give the second dose. We wanted to get through the clinical trials quickly. If you had a three month interval between dose one and dose two, then it would have been much more difficult to get through the clinical trials in time.
0: Why did you decide that you had to live by the clinical trial results in the real world, given the high death rates and the efficacy of a single dose? Because the FDA had laid
1: out those standards by which they would conduct an accelerated evaluation. Peter Marks is the head of the what's called the Center for Biomedical Evaluation and Research, which is the center within the FDA that evaluates the clinical trials and eventually grants an emergency use authorization or full approval. Peter was absolutely committed to making sure not a single quality standard was compromised. The minimum effectiveness by which they would have granted an emergency use authorization was 50%. The vaccines wound up significantly higher than that, but my point is... A typical time frame to evaluate a vaccine could be easily three to six months at the FDA. So the process of evaluation was transformed. The standards of evaluation weren't diminished.
0: Let's imagine I made you the president of a Central American country like Panama. Pfizer says I can give you a million doses so you're not constrained by the FDA. It's October 15, 2020. You got a million doses. What do you do? I
1: would not use them. And here's why. This virus, despite its destructiveness, the case fatality rate is about 0.3%, Okay, 0.3%. If you're going to be vaccinating 280 million Americans, the vast majority of whom are very healthy, you better be sure that vaccine doesn't have anything wrong with it. So if you think about the risk-return ratio here, if there was something wrong with that vaccine that could have been revealed in the last couple of weeks of the trial, and you had gone ahead and given it to millions of healthy individuals, you would have done more harm than good. You had a totally different perspective for therapeutics. If you have COVID and you can't breathe and you're lying in a hospital bed and there's something that we had a question about, well, oh, maybe it's not perfect, maybe there's the safety profile isn't great, but the benefits could be there. Let's do it. A person has a higher probability of dying if you don't than if you do. That's not the same with
0: vaccines, where you're giving it to literally hundreds of millions of healthy individuals. Next hypothetical, let's take a healthy person. We give him the vaccine, and then we inject COVID into his body to see if the vaccine works. This would clearly speed up the efficacy evaluation because we don't have to worry about whether the patient was exposed to the virus. We know he did. So the sample size could be much smaller. We've guaranteed it. We're really putting them at risk, but there's great scientific and public health benefits associated with it. And if we're able to find volunteers willing to do it for society and for potentially themselves, why not, on an expected value basis, potentially save millions of lives?
1: You still don't create a safety profile. You would maybe answer the question about effectiveness, but you would not have answered the question about safety. I'll give you an example. The FDA normally requires 20,000 persons going through these clinical trials. Because of the accelerated time frame, the FDA wanted to be absolutely sure we were creating a safety profile, and they said a minimum of 30,000 in each trial. And that wasn't for effectiveness, that was principally for safety.
0: We got two questions. One is, does the vaccine prevent serious COVID? And the second, does the vaccine hurt you?
1: That's effectiveness and safety.
0: Why not first focus on effectiveness with human trials and then safety? Why not that order?
1: There were two or three other considerations as to why we didn't do that. There weren't that many doses available on October 1st or October 15th, okay? So even if we had proven it, maybe there were a million or two million doses available, but not 20 million as we eventually had. The second reason is right up until the last couple of days, we were racing to develop an information technology system that could even track the distribution of these doses. So we didn't even have a system to track distribution, equitable distribution, which you can imagine would be a big topic politically, until about four days before we released the vaccines in
0: December. Was it a mistake to prioritize certain individuals for vaccination? Should we just have done it first come, first serve?
1: What we did was we eventually came down on a very simple principle. We'll allocate to the public health jurisdictions, there's actually 64 public health jurisdictions on the basis of per capita. Why was that decision made? I use a term in the book about the federal government, never let your reach exceed your grasp. We didn't want to assume what the highest priority would be in California versus Oregon versus Florida versus Texas. We wanted the local leaders to determine what their priorities were based on vulnerability, how many people were in nursing homes in that state, maybe based on wanting to get the kids back to school. We weren't gonna impose our will on their prioritization of distribution. And therefore, we said the best way to do this is on a per capita basis. Now, to your point about first come, first serve, on January 12th of 2021, eight days before we left, when we were looking at the data, And this was only a couple weeks into distribution. Some jurisdictions had used 80% of every dose we distributed. Some had only used 30%. Alex Azar and Bob Redfield, the head of the CDC, had a press conference and said, henceforth, if you have not used the equivalent of your previous week's allocation, we're going to take your subsequent week's allocation and we're going to give it to those who are consuming more. Boy, did those numbers go up after that. (laughs) The states started reporting their data much more quickly and much more accurately.
0: I want to discuss the terminology used for the success of vaccines. You mentioned that the Moderna vaccine was 95% efficacious, which means in this context, the patients who use that vaccine have a 95% chance of not being hospitalized with covid this has nothing to do whether the vaccine can prevent you from getting sick from COVID. I think that definition is different and create a confusion. When you look at a typical flu vaccine, what we notice is it's 55% efficacious. We had Ofer Levy on a previous episode of this podcast. Ofer told us that the typical flu vaccine is like 75% efficacious for kids and only 35% for 65 and older. You know, you shoot that vaccine into a kid and the immune system response is incredible. You stick into an old guy and nothing happens. Now, when you say that the flu vaccine is 55% efficacious for the flu, we normally mean that means that there's a 55% chance that you won't get sick at all from the flu. We don't say it's a 55% chance of not being hospitalized from the flu. And you talk about 95% efficacious for, let's say, the Pfizer vaccine. You didn't say there was not a 95% chance that you don't get COVID, but merely that it's a 95% chance that you don't get hospitalized from COVID. And I think that created a lot of confusion when all of a sudden you take the vaccine and you get COVID. Why did you define it differently in the flu case versus COVID? And why was there such public confusion over that efficacious definition?
1: I'll answer the second part first. It was very poorly communicated. The formal scientific term is, what is the primary endpoint of the clinical trial? For COVID vaccines, the primary endpoint was not infection it was serious illness, hospitalization, or death. The intent of the clinical trials was never to evaluate whether or not the vaccine would prevent infection. It was the latter, which you described, which is principally, would it prevent serious illness, hospitalization, or death. Why that wasn't communicated that way, I'm not really sure. But from a public health perspective, it makes a big difference, because people thought that, oh, if I'm vaccinated, I can't transmit this virus. Well, that was never true. That was never evaluated to be true or not. I think part of the reason we didn't evaluate it that way, if I had to speculate just a bit, is the logistics of the clinical trials would have been very difficult. We knew this virus could transmit asymptomatically, and we knew that you could be infected and have zero symptoms. So it would have been almost a constant daily monitoring for six or eight weeks of everyone in a clinical trial which I think just would have been overwhelming. And that's why it's much easier to monitor serious illness, hospitalization,
0: and death. In your book, you describe the public-private relationship between the government and the vaccine manufacturers. And in particular, you describe Pfizer's unwillingness to play by the HHS rules. Why was Pfizer being so difficult? And were there any negative ramifications for their intransigence?
1: The vast majority of the private sector mobilized in an extraordinarily patriotic and committed way i'm sure many of those companies lost money on their participation people ask me if i'm worried if any of them did make a profit and i said i hope they did because their efforts were absolutely extraordinary and i'll say the same thing about pfizer despite our challenges with pfizer what they delivered to the american people was spectacular the difference is though between let's say a Pfizer and a Moderna or Johnson and Johnson were pretty profound in terms of how they collaborated with us. The NIH, the National Institutes of Health, wanted a common data and safety monitoring board for every clinical trial. Why? Well, because there was an opportunity to exchange some practices and learnings across the trials. A data and safety monitoring board is an independent body that looks at the data before it goes to the FDA and says, we have enough data now in terms of positive cases or whatever to take the information to the FDA. Pfizer is the only one who had its own DSMB. They didn't want to collaborate, oh, the government DSMB will slow us down and that type of thing. The second and more serious issue was Carlo De Natari Stefani, who was our manufacturing expert, 35 years in pharmaceutical manufacturing developed this program called Persons in Plants. We had to stand up from scratch or expand 27 different manufacturing facilities in seven months. And what Carlo did was form multidisciplinary government teams to go out into each of these facilities every day, such that if they encountered any problem whatsoever, I need an electrician, I need raw materials, I need equipment flown in from Germany, Boom, they would communicate back to D.C. We'd mobilize the resources. We'd use the Defense Production Act. Whatever we needed to do, we'd get it done. Pfizer said, no, no, no. They gave us the stiff arm. They didn't want us in their plant. They didn't want our help. And we expected 40 million doses. (laughs) What we got was 16 to 18 million doses. It hurt us two ways. One is every governor in the country and every public health jurisdiction was asking us in September and October, well, how many doses will we have? And we assumed right up until the last minute that we'd have 20 million from Pfizer in November and 20 million in December, because that's what they told us they would have. And we didn't have any line of sight into what was really happening in their plan. So when they kind of pulled the rug out from underneath our feet in November and said, guess what, we don't have any in November. We hope to get you 20 in December, that really hurt the planning process And then second, it hurt poor General Perna, right? He's out there telling the states, this is what we're going to give you. And then he had to say, we can't give you that because Pfizer didn't deliver what they said they were going to deliver. What happened is in the late fall of 2020, Moderna had received a Defense Production Act Title III priority contract, which meant the following. Any supplies they needed from any supplier in the country would have to put Moderna first before they delivered anything to anyone else. Or the government could literally confiscate that factory and operate it itself. So what happened in the late fall was Pfizer was running into trouble getting raw materials because guess who was getting them all? Moderna. Because they had the Title III priority. And you say, well, why didn't Pfizer have a Title III priority? Because when you grant a Title III Defense Production Act authority, it is intervening in a supply chain. It is basically disrupting commercial contracts that already exist. And in return for that, the government expects you as a manufacturer who's asking for that priority to provide information. Precisely what do you need, from whom, in what quantity, and how are you going to use it? And by the way, all of what you produce with this DPA Defense Production Act Title III priority, has to be used in the United States unless you get a presidential waiver. So Pfizer did not want to comply with the requirements necessary to get a priority rating. And what happened was as the raw material started to dry up for them, because Moderna did get the priority, in the late fall of 2020, they said, we cry uncle, we want our DPA Title III authority and we'll let you see all of what we're doing with it and we'll report all this data. Now remember, we had already given them a $2 billion Mm advance purchase contract. We acquired all of the needles and all of the syringes for them. We set up 70,000 distribution sites for them. We even acquired the dry ice necessary to ship their doses. Pfizer likes to say we didn't participate in warp speed. Well, you participated in almost every other aspect other than Having us manufacture the doses or having people in your plants. It left a bad taste in our mouth about what were their motives and why were they doing this. And remember, they were in a race with Moderna. The first company to have a vaccine, the brand elevation associated with that was fantastic, right? The whole world knew it. Every other company with whom we dealt, Larry, every, every single one of them was so cooperative, so patriotic. And Pfizer stood out as an exception to that.
0: Incredibly The federal government funded the manufacturing of vaccines before they even knew it worked. He didn't wait for the clinical trial results. It was all about speed of execution. By manufacturing in advance, you could save lives by coming to market faster. What happened?
1: Yeah, that's 100% attributed to Secretary Alex Azar, who spent 10 years at Eli Lilly before he became the secretary understood what risks the pharmaceutical industry would take independently and which ones the federal government needed to assume. The benefits that we talked about, six to seven billion dollars a day of federal tax revenue of saving American lives, the vast majority of those benefits accrued to the government, to society, to us, not to the manufacturer. So it actually made a lot of economic sense for us to assume that risk. But he was the first one who recognized that and said, if we're ever going to get millions of vaccines into American arms before year end, we have to start manufacturing right away. The other benefit of that was it produced a sense of urgency to get the syringes and needles before the rest of the world was even thinking about that.
0: In your book, you mentioned that the antitrust concerns related to pharmaceutical firms collaborating and sharing information, techniques, methods, etc. And you made an exception because of the public health crisis. You weighed two different public interests, competition benefits versus saving lives now. What happened?
1: The Department of Justice would not permit sharing pricing information. The primary concern is higher prices. The DOJ appropriately said, even during this public health emergency, there was no need to transmit prices or contractual arrangements. The primary reason we wanted it is because there were some pharmaceutical companies that could liberate capacity to manufacture vaccines, but weren't manufacturing them themselves. Early on, Merck tried to develop a vaccine. It failed. They pulled out. But they had manufacturing capacity available. We wanted Merck to manufacture vaccines for Johnson & Johnson. But in order to do so, J&J had to hand over all of its recipes to Merck. In a normal course of action, someone could have accused them of an antitrust violation. But the DOJ addressed that.
0: What policies did the rest of the world adopt for vaccine research, development, and manufacturing that differed from the U.S. approach? What worked and what failed?
1: The Department of Health and Human Services is linked in globally to a lot of public health agencies. So we had some insight into what was going on. For China and for Russia, it was very clear. They wanted to win the race so that they could exercise what we call vaccine diplomacy. If China had a Sinovac vaccine, the Russian one was called Sputnik V. The V is for vaccine. They wanted to race, get theirs done, and then distribute to the world in a way that they could generate friends and potentially allies. Interestingly, the Sinovac vaccine, when it was approved by the World Health Organization, had a minimum standard for effectiveness globally was 50%. Sinovac vaccine came in at 50.4%. So that raised a lot of suspicion. And other countries wound up saying, that's probably not for us. Same with the Russian vaccine. They never had any transparency about the quality of it. So those two fell apart when manufacturing started ramping up for Pfizer, Moderna.
0: Let's focus on the EU. This is a region that has a population, wealth, and scientific literacy similar to the United States. The EU used a different regulatory regime and incentives to discover and manufacture vaccines. How did the EU approach compare with the American Operation Warp Speed, and what were their results?
1: The UK was probably the most successful with AstraZeneca. And early on, we made a big investment in AstraZeneca. In fact, I think that was our first investment in the early summer of 2020. The UK approved the AstraZeneca vaccine, and they're still using it. And that became the primary export vaccine into continental Europe as well. The problem is when we looked at the AstraZeneca vaccine, in the course of their clinical trial, which is a big no-no, they changed the dose rate in the middle of the trial without asking the FDA. And the FDA denied emergency use authorization to AstraZeneca. But maybe their trial submission data was better in the U.K. or whatever. I mean, I know the U.K. has high standards, but they just didn't meet our standards here in the U.S. So I would point to AstraZeneca in the U.K. and Oxford as a real success story. India wound up doing a lot of contract manufacturing, so that expanded the capacity of vaccines available. But there was nothing like warp speed in terms of government, public-private partnership, multiple vaccine candidates. European governments were pretty severely criticized by their own populations for not having done something faster.
0: The American government has a responsibility to save American lives, but we also have a desire to help mankind. Could we have done more to manufacture vaccines in India, as an example? When we started production of the Moderna vaccine in March 2020, could we have done the same thing in India, maybe at our expense, as a gift to the world? The
1: Defense Production Act and the ability to acquire the raw materials, with the exception of a few reciprocal agreements with Canada, does not extend beyond our shores. Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca had contracts for 3 billion doses of vaccines were going to be manufactured outside the United States under licensing agreements from those manufacturers. We encouraged that the... Pandemic Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act. And what it does is in the time of a national emergency, indemnifies them against any future lawsuits. So in other words, if there were a safety issue after the FDA granted an emergency use authorization and someone died because of the vaccine injection, not because of COVID, but because of the vaccine, they cannot sue Pfizer or Moderna under this PrEP Act. What they really wanted was the liability protection, and that's what the PrEP Act gives them. However, we cannot extend that to a foreign country in this case. That may also have made some of the manufacturers reluctant to engage in India if they
0: didn't have that type of protection. Vaccine hesitancy is the next topic. I was hospitalized with COVID for 10 days in December 2020 in Miami Beach, and at that time, the vaccine had just become available to hospital workers but not to the public. I asked the nursing staff who worked in the COVID ward if they were getting vaccinated, and they said no. I asked the physicians and they said yes. What do you make of the nurses' vaccine hesitancy? This was one of the
1: more perplexing things that public health leaders encountered when we started distributing vaccines because most of those jurisdiction leaders prioritized their frontline healthcare workers. In the first three weeks, 30% of those workers did not want the vaccine, which created a real problem for us because once you open the box that was stored at minus 80 degrees Celsius of vaccine doses, you only had 10 days to use them. So if some big hospital found out four days into it, oh my gosh, we ordered 5,000, but only 3,500 of our employees want this, it was very difficult to get rid of those other 1,500 Some hospitals began calling their board members and everyone else in the community and saying, come on in and get vaccinated, even though you're not a frontline healthcare worker. Let me give you maybe a speculative reason. 20 million healthcare workers in the country, fewer than 200,000 of them actually had contracted COVID. They were the ones who had the most theoretical exposure, but they had less than 1% infection rate. The short answer to that is they were extremely well protected. They had N95 masks, they had goggles, they had everything. They had a real sense of security. It wasn't like they were dropping like flies because they were getting infected and they're the ones who were working with all the COVID patients. They represent the American people, which is still 25% are hesitant to get the vaccines. Hopefully we can figure out how to deal with this a little bit
0: more effectively next time around. Paul, you ran for governor of Pennsylvania a few years ago. Imagine you'd won that election, and you were in charge of this decision in your state. You had data that healthcare workers were not getting sick, that their face masks were protecting them. Why not do the first come, first serve? It's a logistical nightmare to get those vaccines to specific populations. I'll see you at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia parking lots. We're going 24-7. Let's go. I would not have done that, even though that is appealing for many reasons.
1: I wouldn't have done it for the following reasons. One is, The impact of COVID on individuals was tremendously asymmetric. A Stanford varsity athlete probably has a chance of being hospitalized if they get COVID. But if you're a 75-year-old in a nursing home or you have underlying health conditions, that might be a 70% chance of being hospitalized. I'd want to at least offer the limited vaccine supply to those who are most vulnerable First, The second argument is one around accessibility. Not everyone has a car to get to Veterans Stadium. And we were hypersensitive to underserved populations who may not have access driving down to the stadium. You can't get out of your nursing home bed to go to the stadium. There were somewhere between one and a half and two million Americans laying in nursing home beds. We engaged companies to go out and offer vaccines to every one of those citizens lying in those beds and the follow-up, the second dose. And that was a very, very successful program. Scott Atlas was seriously criticized for this and the Great Barrington Group. But if you look at it two and a half years into this, they were 100% right, which is, why didn't we just put all our resources protecting the most vulnerable because for the vast majority of Americans, this is not really much more serious than the flu. And for some Americans, it's deadly. If I were the governor of Pennsylvania, I would have focused on the most vulnerable first, given then the option, and I would never would have forced them to take it if they chose not to take it.
0: You mentioned the probabilistic chance of hospitalization for the Stanford athlete, but you didn't multiply at times the number of years saved. How should public health officials think about that? The nursing home patient may only have a year of expected remaining life, while the Stanford athlete has 60 years. Should we consider that in the calculus? The UK and
1: the National Institute for Clinical Effectiveness talk about exactly this quality of life years. I don't think it's the ethos of the United States. The ethos of American medicine is heroic intervention. Do what you absolutely have to do to save a life, whether that's an 85-year-old or a six-month-old. It's not the culture of American medicine to sacrifice some who just
0: don't have as many years left so we can take care of those who have more. Let me push back with three examples. The emergency room, the battlefield, and our legal system. The ER uses triage to decide where to employ resources. If there's an injured 96-year-old woman and a 7-year-old boy, they're going to choose the 7-year-old boy because they make that calculus. And the similar arguments we made on the battlefield. This guy's not going to make it. Let's focus on the guy who can make it injured on that battlefield. In the legal situation, there's a car crash, and someone is culpable for that. When calculating damages, we look at the number of expected years left in their life. Damage claims incorporate that very idea. Certainly for
1: insurance claims, you're absolutely right. The emergency room ethos is similar to the battlefield one, which is we triage on the basis of the probability that this person's going to make it. I don't necessarily think they do it based on age. I think they do it on a clinical basis. What is the probability that if I intervene, it's gonna help this person versus this other person and I only have limited resources? I think the American people have an expectation that says, why should we ever have to make those trade-offs? Aren't we the wealthiest country in the world? Why can't we do this? So I think that's the underlying piece that makes it difficult for us as opposed to the UK, which formed the national health system on the basis of social equity, not heroic intervention. That's why they
0: formed the national health system. The vaccine became a hot political issue for both parties. Biden, Harris, and Cuomo attacked the Trump administration and its vaccine efforts. And there was significant Republican voter vaccine hesitancy once Biden became president. How did politics play into vaccine hesitancy? Governor
1: Cuomo, when he said he was going to set up his own equivalent of an FDA within the state so that even after the... Food and Drug Administration granted an emergency use authorization. He wasn't going to permit New Yorkers to get that until they made their own determination. And we said, well, that's fine. We'll just reallocate your doses the first week until you guys figure that out. And of course, that dropped very quickly, right? That had to be politically motivated. It's obviously a shot at the administration. When you had Biden and Harris saying they'd never trust a Trump vaccine and then the following spring they're scratching their head and saying, why are Americans hesitant to get the vaccine? Well, look in the mirror, that's
0: part of it, right? What is your view on transparency for clinical trial results in real time? We could have shared all the information with the public so they they could make decisions about schooling, employment, or future income, and companies didn't know how to plan for supplies, hiring, or new business. The public was left in the dark. Why not just open the kimono? Publicly
1: traded companies themselves have the full right to reveal that information. I talk in the book about the CEO of Pfizer coming out in late September and saying, our internal models tell us we're going to have really good data before the end of October. As government officials, we were absolutely prohibited from revealing what they call market-moving information. Now, we had that data internally, but to reveal that would have been market-moving information, and ethically, we can't.
0: Why not, for the public interest's sake, demand that information be released after the market closed under an executive order?
1: The Data and Safety
0: Monitoring Board is
1: the first one that can know. The company knows how many positive cases there are. The DSMB could not reveal any data until they got the 32 positive cases. The DSMB could say, the 32 cases are ambiguous, keep on going. The DSMB could say, wow, all 32 cases are in the placebo group. This looks like a really good vaccine. Let's go to the FDA. Or they could say, All 32 cases are in the vaccinated group. Let's shut this trial down. The company does not even know on a daily basis what the status is of their vaccine efficacy. It's only when the DSMB releases it. And that's important because that's an independent body that the company can't manipulate anything in the midst of the trial until an independent body says it's time to release the data. So maybe we should have re-looked at that in the context of the pandemic, but I think all of that is in the spirit of safety and effectiveness.
0: New topic, kids. Why were the kids' studies so
1: delayed? My understanding is that sequence, adults and children, is precisely the sequence that is followed for virtually every vaccine. The second reason though, is we knew that kids mortality, the hospitalization on a per case basis was relatively negligible. I don't want to downplay that, you know, 60 or 70 kids died.
0: So do you think if the kids had been at risk, they would have changed the process? Absolutely, absolutely. In your book, you mentioned that you went to great lengths to have clinical trials match the American population with minority representation. Why was this so important?
1: Two reasons why we were insistent. One is different races have different reactions. It could be safety, it could be effectiveness. But I think the larger reason was one around vaccine hesitancy. A lot of minority populations in some of our history has not been so good in these areas are hesitant to take vaccines in the first place. And if they found out that they weren't even represented in the clinical trials, we thought at least they
0: would be even more hesitant. It's a wonderful objective, but were there costs and consequences? Did it slow down the timing of the clinical trials? Did it add to the logistical complexity and cut down the number of trials that were done? It might have slowed down the Moderna trial
1: a little bit, a couple weeks. But we felt the trade-off of the integrity of the study in terms of representing American Indian population, Asian population, Hispanic, African American was very important. It was just one of those trade-offs for me.
0: I end each episode on a note of optimism. Paul, what are you optimistic about lessons learned from Operation Warp Speed?
1: I'm very optimistic that the federal government and America's private sector has the ability and the innovative spirit to respond. No one else in the world could do what we did in such a short period of time. And despite all the political divisions and everything we've talked about for the last hour and a half, there were a number of folks who just put their heads down and said, I'm going to do this for the good of the country, Democrats, Republicans alike. And the result was spectacular. So I'm extraordinarily optimistic about what the average American can do when challenged. The America I saw was a very patriotic, committed, capable, innovative, entrepreneurial And caring listeners, if they get a chance to read the book, will understand this is an uplifting story about American exceptionalism.
0: Thanks, Paul, for joining us today. That ends today's session. If you missed last week's show on the rise of authoritarianism, check it out. Our first speaker was Moses Naeem, who is a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the author of the new book entitled Revenge of Power. Moses tells us about how populism, polarization, and post-truth, the three P's, undermine the democratic process, and that there is a global trend in the past few decades away from democracies towards more authoritarian regimes. Our second speaker was Julian Waller, a political scientist at George Washington University, and he has a new paper out entitled, Authoritarianism Here. Julian spoke about why strong democratic governments in the U.S. makes it highly unlikely that authoritarianism can take hold in the U.S. because of the diffusion of power within the federal government. I'd like to make a plug for next week's show. Our speaker will be Mark Galliati, who has a new book entitled The Weaponization of Everything, a Field Guide to the New Way of War. Mark will help us analyze why Putin chose to make war in Ukraine, his objectives, and his endgame. You can find all of our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, what happens next in sixminutes.com? Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Please join our free email list to hear about upcoming programs on our website. I would like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.